As we look at this chapter of the confession, we deal with uh, Genesis, in part, Genesis uh, 2 and Genesis 3. Well, actually, more than in part. Uh, we primarily deal with Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Now, if we were to just sort of take, it, take a look at Genesis 2 and 3 uh, as is with a surface reading, it might appear to be a simple Bible story about man and woman and a snake and how they were bad. But if we take a look closer and we start to see the cosmic significance of these chapters, something more sort of comes out. Genesis 2 and 3 becomes actually foundational to the whole understanding of the world, the problem of sin that's in the world, and the need for a solution to this problem of sin that's in the world. So if uh, we view it, and I was thinking through this. Oh, what happened to my PowerPoint here? Let me try and get it back. Sorry, one sec. Give it some time to come back up. So sin, as we should understand it, I think, is a pandemic that has affected everyone of natural birth who has ever lived. When you think about sin, it's not confined to this area or that area or that area or this region or over there in that country. Sin is a pandemic. It's everywhere. Everyone has been affected by sin. And the thing about sin is it has a 100% kill rate. Everybody dies because of sin. So if the Bible is this great drama of redemption and sin is this mysterious figure that shows up at the beginning of that play and kills everyone it comes into contact with, then the rest of the drama, the biblical narrative, is about solving the mystery of how to fix this problem of sin. And that's what the Bible lays out for us. So as we continue in our study of the 1689, we'll be dealing this morning with chapter 6. So much of what I utilize today in this class, um, I, I utilize a lot of the commentary of Sam Waldron and Gary Marble as they ex exposit the 1689. But chapter six of the confession comes to this, this doctrine of the fall of man, sin and its punishment. So it articulates what happened in the garden and treats Adam, Eve and the serpent as historical figures and understands this event to actually have taken place. So the confession doesn't view uh, the scene at the garden in, uh, at the beginning of creation as mystical or as just a mystical narrative. It views it as something that actually happened. The Bible assumes, and the confession here assumes it happened. So following chapter three, which speaks of creation, which is the articulation of the execution of God's decree, and chapter 5, which is a follow-up to chapter 4, I'm sorry, chapter 4, which deals with God's providence and the relationship between the first cause, God, and the second causes, even the, even the sin of men, we now come to chapter 6. So this chapter more thoroughly addresses what happened in the garden and the results of what happened in the garden. So let's start by working through chapter 1. Let me have someone read chapter 1 for us, if you wouldn't mind. One? I'm sorry, paragraph one. Okay. Don't read the whole chapter one. Sure. <laughs> Just read <laughs> paragraph one of chapter six. I got it. God created humanity upright and perfect 
He gave them a righteous law that would have led to life if they had kept it, but threatened death if they broke it. Yet they did not remain for long in this position of honor. Satan used the craftiness of the serpent to seduce Eve, who then seduced Adam. Adam acted without any outside compulsion and deliberately transgressed the law of their creation and the command given to them by eating the forbidden fruit. God was pleased, in keeping with his wise and holy counsel, to permit this act because he had purpose to direct it for his own glory. Okay, thank you, Jeremy. <clears throat> so paragraph one starts here by affirming the state of mankind prior to the fall, which we see in chapter four of creation. God created man upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law written upon his heart and a particular law not to eat of the forbidden fruit, which would have, as it says, led to life if they had kept it, but threatened death, death if they broke it. Yet they did not remain for long in that position of honor. So this chapter plainly affirms that Adam and Eve fell. They broke God's righteous law, and the consequence was death, which, as I mentioned, all of us deal with and all of us face. It has a 100% kill rate. They died spiritually when they sinned, and they would eventually die physically. God planted a garden, placed them in the midst of the garden, gave them a command to obey, which they disobeyed, and in that breaking of his command, they did not remain in their position of honor. So I'll come back to that a little later. But notice the link um, when, when this paragraph says, Satan deceived Eve, then Eve seduced Adam. So we know from Genesis 3, 1 to 6, that Satan used, in the words of the confession, craftiness to seduce Eve. So craftiness is, is another way of saying that Satan used fine argument. So Satan, through his crafty use of fine argumentation, seduced Eve. Then Eve, or I'm sorry, deceived Eve, then Eve seduced Adam. And how did she do it? Well, Genesis 3, 6 tells us how she did it. Let me have someone read Genesis 3, 6 for us. Oh, it's not there. All right. <laughs> uh, turn to Genesis 3, 6. We can read it for us. Thank you, bro. So when a woman saw Okay, so the Bible doesn't tell us specifically Eve's actions or words to Adam in this exchange between them, but it does say that she gave the fruit to her husband who was with her. Now, uh, people, uh, theologians, just historically have lined up on both sides of this, whether Eve was, Adam was actually with Eve or if he was sort of in the proximity. So, some interpret Adam as literally with her, and some say she, what he wasn't. John Calvin, for instance, he looks at 1 Timothy 2.14, which says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. So the idea is that Adam was close by, and Eve communicated the conversation she had with the serpent and related back from her uh, deceived and skewed point of view to Adam. So however uh, you, you view that, we know that Adam, uh, the, Adam knew of this, this transgression and himself took part in it. So whether he was there or he was not there, 
we see the result of his own transgression. And so all of us are fallen with him. So continuing, this paragraph affirms that Adam was not under any compulsion or power that would move Adam to sin against his will. Lest we get that confused. That's what this paragraph means by Adam acted without any outside compulsion. So man sins because they desire to sin. We are always uh, culpable or to blame. Um, If someone is tempted and falls, they don't fall um, against their will. So we're not sort of walking on the path of uprightness uh, by nature. And then we sort of slip and fall and we're surprised like, oh man, where did that sin come from? That's so foreign to my nature. No, (laughs) we sin and we sin in line with our own (laughs) desire and will to sin. So we can't say Eve, or as, as Adam said, the woman you gave me, it's her. We can't blame other people for our sin. We can't blame shift. It's always out of our own desires and wills that we sin. So Adam is not off the hook here. He still has the ability in his pre-fall state to perfectly obey God's law. He had the power to fulfill it, if you remember from chapter 4, paragraph 2. But despite this power to fulfill the command of God, Adam willfully transgressed the law of their creation. He did what was forbidden to do, and he yanked the forbidden fruit for himself. Now, I want to go back um, to a couple of things that, I, that we read towards the beginning of this paragraph. First, um, what is the confession referring to when it says Adam's obedience would have led to life? And what is the threat of death? And how do these two relate to Adam and Eve's position of honor? That's mentioned in this paragraph. We know that Adam had life and he had a good life. He was created upright and enjoyed communion with God in a unique and special way. He's in this garden, God plants a garden, puts him in the garden. He has all these good things to enjoy and God gives him a command not to eat. But we know that he had communion and fellowship with God. That's true. And because that's true, we might ask, what else was there to gain? What is the confession saying that it would have led to life? What else was there to gain for Adam? What does it mean when it says his obedience to the righteous law would have led to life? So the confession here cites Genesis 2, 16 to 17, which you can turn there. So we can take a look at those, those verses. Genesis 2, 16 to 17. <clears throat> we'll just use the good old faithful word. Because <laughs> my PowerPoint is not working this morning. Lord God commanded, <clears throat> saying, from any tree of But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. From the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Okay. Thank you, Scott. So the reformers recognize some special agreement between God and Adam here. I mentioned in my class on chapter four of creation that the confession recognizes here a unique period of probation. 
a time that had a beginning and an end by which Adam was to prove his love for God by obeying his command. God saying, do not eat of the tree became the context of this probationary period. So the question here again is, what was there to gain? The Puritans, along with many other Reformed theologians, recognized the significance of these early chapters of Genesis and articulated them in the theological formulation called the covenant of works. Now, there were also many Reformed theologians who rejected the phrase the covenant of works, but those who retained the term found it to be biblical and a helpful way to articulate this doctrine. But back to the question again, what was the goal of this probationary period also referred to as the Adamic administration or the Adamic covenant or the uh, Adenic covenant or the covenant of works. The goal of God's covenant here is to bring eternal life to man. This covenant would bring life to man by works. God gave Adam a righteous law which had been unto life had he, had he kept it. Adam, by accomplishing the covenant of works, was to earn eternal life. Uh, he was to seal his communion bond with God and righteousness by his obedience in order to attain incorruptibility and immortality. So turn to 1 Corinthians uh, 15, verses 53 to 54. First Corinthians 15, verses 53 to 54. Let me have someone read that for us. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Okay, thank you. So remember that Adam was created upright with the possibility or potential to sin. And how do we know that? Because he actually sinned. He was created with corruptibility. He was created able to sin and able not to sin. But Adam's obedience to God's command would have brought him into a state of incorruptibility, something better than his present pre-fall state. So this is how the uh, confession is interpreting uh, these passages and it's hermeneutic as it concerns, as it looks back and concerns Adam's, thank you, Ron, Adam's pre-fall state. So looking at what Christ has accomplished helps us to understand what Adam was supposed to accomplish. And the 1689 Confession doesn't use this description, covenant of works, in this chapter. It uses it in, in other chapters, chapters uh, uh, 19, paragraph 1, if I'm not mistaken. But as Pascal Donal says, there is no doubt that the Baptist Confession of Faith endorses the doctrine of the covenant of works, but it is presented differently. When Donal says differently, he means different from the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Savoy Declaration. Those are usually understood as sister confessions, okay? 
So there's, uh, if you have any questions on that or would like to sort of talk more about it, please feel free to come up to me afterwards and we can uh, discuss more and I can maybe point you to some resources that are, that are helpful to interpret how the confession is interpreting these, these passages. Okay, let's move on to chapter two. Yes. yes. Um, the, the Baptist confession is substantially different in my reading than the Westminster Confession. Yes, it is. And um, one of the issues that has led to some bad theology is uh, the first line, actually the second, the second sentence. He gave them the righteous law that would have led to life if they had kept it, but threatened death if they were broken. That's not mentioned in the Westminster Confession. And one of the pitfalls here is that people have taken that to mean that they understood what death was. Mm. And therefore, death was existent at that time. I see what you're saying. Mm. So, the question, my question is, in your study, have you come across anyone's comments or thoughts on how they, I believe progression, the revelation is progressive. Right. And I believe this is historical. Right. But if, you're, if they're using words that they did not understand at the time, did they understand what life meant? Did they understand what the meaning of death was? Right. How, how did you, in your study, did you come across anyone who was trying to address that? Um, so it, what you're asking is, as they read Genesis 2, 2 and 3, they, are to, they understood there to be death in the garden before he ate from the tree? Oh, did Adam and Eve understand that death? No, that's a, that's a good question. Um, that's a good question. I haven't, in, in my prep for this, I haven't come across anything that uh, commented on Adam and Eve's understanding of death in the garden at that time. No, but that's a good question. That's a good question. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. So that's, although conceptually maybe they didn't understand, it's still part of the Right. So based off of God's special revelation to them that if you eat of it, the day you eat of it, you will die. Yeah, so there were covenant stipulations there. Yeah. So, okay, maybe, so, so the question is, did they understand the context of life, of the promise of life and the threat of death and when God gave I'm it to them? The is because the, the Baptist Confession is driven from the Westminster Confession, about 100 years apart. Right. If you look in chapter 6 on the Westminster, it doesn't say anything about life and death. So the Westminster Divine knew the, the scripture, they knew that verse, but they chose not to address it that way. And right. Then it, it, and then, when the Baptist Confession was done, they really expanded on this. Right. It's only, the Westminster is only a few sentences. Right. This so is a much bigger paragraph. Yeah. So I think, and, and there is a difference if you look at them side by side. This first paragraph in the Confession, uh, and in our Confession, draws out a lot more on that. And from what I've been 
reading, which is um, Pascal Denald, as he deals with this, he looks at the 1689 and the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, and the Savoy as those sister confessions and draws out the, the um, particular Baptists as they dealt with this. They're doing a hermeneutic as they're looking at all of scripture and saying, okay, as we look at 1 Corinthians 15 and other passages, as they lay out in Romans 5 of what Adam failed to accomplish, they're looking at Christ to see what he accomplished and that's, I think, an, um, informing their hermeneutic of Genesis 2. So looking at Genesis 2 as is, it doesn't say, any, it doesn't say explicitly there that um, if Adam would have obeyed, there would have been a higher state of life for him in Genesis 2. But I think they're stepping back and looking at all of Scripture and saying, okay, what, more, what further data, clearer data, do we have to better interpret Genesis 2? And I think 1 Corinthians 15, 53 to 54, and Romans 5 is helping to interpret that. And also um, Hosea 6, 7, which speaks of this, this uh, command given in the context of a covenant. So I think they're allowing, trying to allow all of Scripture to speak to Genesis 2. And I think they would have, and maybe I, initially I, I misunderstood your question, I think they would have, have known um, because just the, the context of the fall, God gives a command, they fall, and then they, even their reaction and the hiding of themselves, all of these things points to the fact that God's, because God communicated it, his revelation to them got through, and they would have had to understood um, the context, one, to be held liable for that, uh, and two, their reaction to that sin uh, shows us that they did understand and how we see the spread of that sin across mankind and how New Testament revelation points to Old Testament and brings it out and gives it further clarity. So, Pito, we'll get you and then we'll, we'll jump to paragraph two. Right. Um, would have given Adam the understanding of because he's in fellowship with God of his character and attributes. If he's later, if God's people later are progressively given the revelation of who God is via his law, right. as the scripture continues to unfold, he would have had all the capacities necessary within the garden at that time to understand uh, the breaking of that law. Right. So when God's people have fellowship with him, it means they commune with him, they understand who he is, they understand his attributes, his character. And though he didn't have what happened on the Sinai with the tablets of stone, right. he had that in a very different yet still substantial manner because he had fellowship with God in the garden. Yeah, and that, that's a really good point. And I think that gets at the fact that they were created upright and true righteousness and holiness. Um, I think all that that in, entails is that, that communion and an understanding of God's command. So it's unique, but it's not, um, it's not a lesser understanding because it is unique. So, but that, that's okay. a great point. And in fact, the only reason I brought it up is because there, is, there are Christians today that are arguing for theistic evolution, basically. Hmm. And, and 
one of the issues is when did death occur? And their argument is that death was occurring before Adam and Eve. Hmm. And this leads to all sorts of things which drive you away from the historical Adam. And you, you know as well as I do that that's an issue in the church today. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's really one of the reasons I brought it up. Yeah. That's helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys for your comments. Okay, let's jump down to paragraph two. Let me have someone read paragraph two for us. By, um, this sin our first parents fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. We fell in them, and through this death came upon all. All became dead in sin and completely defiled in all the capabilities and parts of soul and body. <clears throat> okay, thank you. So this paragraph starts by confirming the tragedy of the fall. Our first parents were in a lofty position of perfection, being holy, righteous, with knowledge and fellowship with God. Of all that, uh, in all of that that we see there, that uh, being holy, righteous, having knowledge and fellowship with God, only heightens, further heightens the tragedy of the fall. Because through one act of willful rebellion, all of that was lost. So we can't even now fully comprehend the loss of what happened as a result of their sin. The extent of this loss is the topic for the rest of this chapter. As we continue, we'll learn that their fallen state has been imputed and conveyed to all their posterity. So posterity is another way of saying future generations. So after Adam and Eve sin, they hear the Lord walking in the garden and they hide themselves. Genesis 3.8. Their fellowship had been broken and they were now alienated from God because of their sin. And their sin is what we call a representative sin. It's representative in nature. This is the concept that there is a solidarity or unity in sin between Adam and all, their, all those descending from him by ordinary generation. Um, sorry, where was I? So in other words, when he sinned, we sinned, okay? So this is contrary to our usual understanding of sin. It not only teaches us that we are basically bad people, but that we are born that way because of our relation to someone who lived thousands of years ago. So if you think about it, you, have you ever uh, had to, and I'm thinking about the way that sin has affected us all, have you ever had to teach a child not to, to not obey because they don't grasp the concept of disobedience? Have you ever had to sit your child down or a child and teach them, well, this is what disobedience means. Nobody would have to have done that. And if you have children or have spent any time around children, you know that that's true. We are born this way because of our relation to someone, again, who lived thousands of years before us. And this is a concept that we don't accept easily. It's offensive to the natural man, but we have to confirm what the word of God teaches here. So turn to Romans 5, chapter, Romans chapter 5, verse 12 for us. Let's bring my PowerPoint back up. And so whoever gets to Romans 5, 12, you can go ahead and read it for us. 
Okay. So the Bible is saying here that there is some mysterious union between Adam and everybody. Adam is the one man in that verse. So every person in this room, every person in uh, Central Florida, every person in the country, every person in the world has the same uh, mysterious union with Adam. Through this union with Adam, sin and death come upon us all. The death God threatened in Genesis 2 included a dissolution and a, or in other words, a separation of the soul from the body. This is strange. It's unnatural. And if you think about it, death is so uh, common for us, TV shows, movies, it's just commonplace that it doesn't even uh, sort of jolt us anymore. It's just something that we're, we're used to. I work at a, at a church, and at that church, I'm a graphic designer, so I do a lot of the um, funeral programs. Um, and it's a big church, and so there are a lot of funeral programs that I do every week. And so I remember when I first started doing these, creating these funeral programs, it was just sort of a part of work. This is just what I, what I do. And then um, one day, for some reason, while work, working on a program, I, it sort of hit me that the, this picture that I was creating and making look pretty in this funeral program is of someone who is dead. They're no longer living. Their body has been ripped from their soul. Their body's in the grave. Their soul is wherever it presently resides. And it struck me that death is a, a reality. I got hit again by the reality of death. And again, this is something that is it's commonplace. Now I'm sort of back to doing these programs and it's, it's still with me, but it's sort of back to my routine. But it's just, it's, death is unnatural. It, it shouldn't be something that we look at and say, and sort of smile at as if it's natural to man's uh, creation. We were not created to die. This dissolution or separation of body and soul was not the state that God intended for mankind. Because of death, at the death of a person, again, the body and soul are torn apart. But this dissolution is only temporary because scripture tells us that there will be a final resurrection for everyone, the wicked and the just. The resurrection will reunite the body and soul separated at death. The just will be raised to honor, but also the wicked will be raised and given a new body to punishment. Not just the righteous, but also the wicked will be given new bodies. We'll discuss that later in chapter 31 on the resurrection of the dead. But my point is that the disillusion or separation of body and soul would never have been a reality except by sin. And even in God's permitting the fall and afterwards death, he will himself resolve the unnatural state of separation. And for the believer, that should bring hope. This paragraph also affirms that man is now completely defiled and all the capabilities and parts of body and soul. So with the loss of original righteousness, all the faculties and parts of soul and body become wholly defiled. Capabilities, which is another way of saying faculties, refers to the body and the soul. The soul being the mind, the emotion, the will, and the affections. 
it's a reference to the totality of man's dis depravity. So if you think about it, um, we're, we're sort of talking about total depravity here. If you think about a glass of water, if I were to have a glass of water and I sat it here and it was a clear glass, if I were to take a, a blue dye and sort of drop it in that glass of water, that water becomes a different tint, a different shade. Uh, it may not be as blue as the dye, the royal blue dye that I'm dropping in it, but it has become uh, tainted. All of that glass of water is now tainted by that blue dye. Uh, in the same way, when we think about man's uh, total depravity, we're not saying that man is utterly depraved. He's not as bad as he could be, but he is totally depraved. He's bad in every part. Mind, soul, body, will, all of him is corrupted. Okay, let's move to paragraph three. <clears throat> a few minutes here. Okay, let me have someone read paragraph three for us. By God's appointment, they were the root and the representatives of the whole human race. Because of this, the guilt of their sin was accounted and their corrupt nature passed on to all their offspring who descended from them by ordinary procreation. Their descendants are now conceived in sin and are by nature children of wrath, servants of sin, and partakers of death and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. Okay. So this paragraph starts by affirming that Adam and Eve's representative nature is what God recognized and purposed to institute. God appointed them as the root and the representatives of the whole human race. Adam stood as mankind's federal head. The word federal comes from the Latin word for covenant. And why did God determine that Adam and Eve, that Adam would act for us all? Well, it's simply because it pleased him to. We often naturally respond to that by saying, that's not fair. We think that, it, but if we think about that for a second, we have to first consider that God's creatures don't have the right to tell God what's right and what's wrong. We can't put God on trial because um, our corrupted sense of justice has been offended. We can't say to God, you have done wrong to me, your creature. Secondly, ask yourself this, is justification by faith alone and Christ alone fair? Remember that justification is built on the same principle of solidarity or union with one acting for the many. That's Romans 5, 17 to 19. If we're not willing to receive Adam as the substitute for all those who are in him, then we are not ready to receive Christ as the substitute for all those who are in him. The principle is the same, federal headship, representative headship. A.W. Pink um, puts it like this. He articulates this doctrine in this way. Adam acted not simply as a private person, the result of whose, com whose conduct affected none but himself, but rather that he transacted as a public person so that what he did recent, so that what he did directly concerned judicially um, involving others. Adam was very much more than the father of the human race. He was also their legal agent standing in their stead. His descendants were not only in him seminally, 
or as their natural head, but were in him also morally and legally as their moral and forensic head. He's articulating representative headship. Let's um, read uh, Romans 5 on this, which I think is, is helpful. <clears throat> Romans five seventeen to 19. Thank you. So, again, this is an affirmation of Adam standing in the place of the many in the same way that Christ stands in the place of the many. Adam standing in the place of all and Christ standing in the place of all who are in him. It's representative headship. Okay, so continuing, this paragraph then goes on to say, because of this, the guilt of their sin was accounted and their corrupt nature passed on to all their offspring. So this is foundational to our doctrine, as we understand it, of original sin. The confession is saying here that there is a dual basis for the transmission of sin and its guilt and depravity to us. Accounted is another way of saying imputed. This means to have something judicially declared and counted to one. This judicial pronouncement may not have anything to do with the actual actions of the person declared guilty. Adam's posterity or further offspring, you and I, did not actually sin in the same way that he did. Yet Adam's guilt was imputed to us as if we did sin. So at birth or even conception, each of Adam's posterity, all of us, is considered guilty of Adam's first sin. Now, this doctrine uh, may sound extreme or harsh or weird, but it's confirmed by the Word of God in uh, Romans 5, as we just read. If you read Romans 5, 12 to 19, it articulates this same idea, federal headship. But we also see it in Psalm 51, 5. Turn to Psalm 51, 5 for Let's, let's read that together. Psalm 51, 5. It says, uh, this is David writing here. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not saying uh, she stepped out on her husband and um, had an extramarital relationship in sin. And, and conceived him. He's not saying that. He's saying that uh, from conception, Adam's guilt is accounted and his corrupt nature is passed on. And sin did my mother conceive me. He's representing here or um, affirming here being in Adam. This passing on of Adam's corrupt nature is, has implications. The book of Genesis makes it clear once our first parents posterity or their first children arrive, immediately sin was present. Cain killed Abel. Entire corrupt civilizations developed and by chapter 6 God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the land. Genesis 6-5 Every intention of the thought of the heart 
was only evil continually. Now, if you look at the middle of this paragraph three, there's an exception implied by the words descending from them by ordinary procreation or ordinary generation. All of Adam's posterity naturally, naturally generated, naturally produced or conceived are imputed with guilt and receive that corrupt nature. But what or who is the exception? The exception is Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ did not descend from Adam and Eve by ordinary generation or ordinary procreation. This is what the paragraph is saying. It's true, Jesus is the seed of the woman, but he is not the seed of the man. What does that mean? Since Jesus was born of the virgin, he was not of Adam. He did not fall under his federal headship. And so Jesus did not inherit Adam's guilt or receive his sinful nature. Jesus didn't have an ordinary origin, but was conceived through the divine intervention of the Holy Spirit. God overcame the problem of Adam's guilt and corrupt nature being passed to the Messiah by way of the virgin conception of Jesus. He provided a mediator who is truly human, but not tainted by Adam's sin. Okay, so he deals with this problem of the corrupt nature being passed on in Adam's guilt and sin being passed on by the miraculous birth of Jesus, the virgin birth of Jesus. Okay, <clears throat> where are we at in time? Thoughts on that before I jump to chapter or paragraph four. Yeah, so. <clears throat> yeah, so I think historically, as this has been articulated, that, that's a good question. As it's been articulated, this federal headship is the federal headship of Adam. And in the posterity of Adam, it's, I, I, I don't want to say it's man only, but here, when we look at the conception of Christ, the Holy Spirit being the divine, uh, the one who divinely intervenes through her conception qualifies or sort of, in a sense, shields Christ from that inherited guilt. So it's not just, it's not like if you're only a man, you inherit the, the sinful nature. It's, it's all of mankind. But the divine Holy Spirit being the one who divinely interventions and conceives in that way sort of um, causes Christ not to fall in the, or, or inherit from um, uh, man or mankind that corrupt nature and the sinfulness of that corrupt nature. But, and again, that, that it, it's not a hard just the man and just, just the woman. The exception here is the Holy Spirit and the conception of Christ being by the Holy Spirit and not by man. And, and so, if it was, I mean, obviously, a, I mean, just getting technical, <coughs> but the Holy Spirit, I mean, it would seem that it would be man that passes that same I'm asking the man. Yeah, so, I think I, like, so, so the, the Catholic would see, they, they sort of deal with this difficulty by saying Mary was sinless sure. to sort of try and wedge between the two. How do you get Christ as right. sinless between Adam? And the reformers didn't affirm that. They would say that the, the Holy Spirit, the, the caveat, the distinction has to be 
the Holy Spirit through this divine conception. Mary was a, was a sinner. We can't deny that. But it has to be the unique intervention of the Spirit, which quali not qualifies, but which makes Christ distinct in his virgin conception and breaks that line of um, inherited guilt, sin, and corruption. So does that? Yeah, no, it's a question. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So Adam as male headship with a sin that's passed on to all male and female, all of his posterity. But the, but the context of that has to be, we have to go back to federal headship because federal headship is the means, Adam is the representative, Christ is the representative. So that has to be the context out of which we understand this at times difficult understanding of Christ being uh, not in Adam's lineage of federal headship because it's through Adam's federal headship that we inherit his corrupt nature. It's not through Eve's federal headship. It's through the man Adam's federal headship. And so we have to view it in that way. So, okay. <clears throat> Let's jump down to paragraph four. <clears throat> Let me have someone read that for us. Antagonistic. Okay, thank you. So this paragraph starts with the phrase, all actual transgression. The terminology here is trying to say that original sin is not, it's not trying to say that original sin is not real. In other words, it's saying that you're a sinner because you sin. We've already addressed the fact that we sin because we are sinners by nature. The point here is to transition from emphasizing the sinful actions to, to I'm sorry, from emphasizing the sinful actions to the sinful nature. So these sinful actions are the fruit of our first corruption. What does that mean? It means that we sin not by accident or contrary to our basically good nature. The truth is we actually sin because we are basically bad. To put it plainly, our sins are not mistakes or accidents. They come from an evil heart. So let's use this analogy of an apple, like using analogies that I think may be helpful. An apple, as it um, starts to develop bruises and discolorations on the surface of the apple, those bruises and discolorations aren't a sign that there's something only wrong with the skin of the apple, but they are a sign that something's wrong with the core of the apple. Something under the surface is bad. And those bruises are the manifestation of that rottenness. It's rotten to the core, okay? Let's look at a couple of scriptures that I think articulate this as well. Sorry for not having the PowerPoint. I know I'm having y'all turn here and there. But let someone go to Matthew 15, 19, and then someone else go to Romans 8, 7. Okay, Roman, 
8 and then Matthew 15, 19. Yeah, Matthew. Okay, thank you. And then Romans? Romans 8, 7. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. So the natural mind cannot subject itself to God's law. It is not even able to. Because this is true, we are, as it says in this paragraph, biased against and disabled toward all that is good. Now, when we think about this, uh, we can probably think of people in our lives that we say, this person seems to be a pretty good person. My neighbor is an upstanding neighbor. Um, We have great neighbors. Um, our, my coworker seems to be an upstanding coworker. They come in on time, they clock in, they do their work, they, they do their work, they seem to enjoy it, they seem to be a, a good person. We look around in the world and we see self-sacrifice all the time. Uh, policemen and firefighters and those who put their life on the line for others. <clears throat> but in order for us to understand and navigate this sometimes difficult idea, we have to define uh, the term good in the right context. So what does this paragraph mean by antagonistic toward all good? The confession here means the kind of good that meets the standard of a holy God, which includes not just the actions, but the motivation, the intention, the heart. So the good is not defined by human standards here. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were able to meet the standard of a holy God, but they were, uh, they were equipped with the possibility of it. But after the fall, original corruption made, every, made, made meeting that standard impossible. So scripture is plain, it says this in Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one, not one understands, not one seeks God, all have turned aside, Together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not one. So as a follow-up to this paragraph, um, it ends by saying that we are completely inclined towards all that is evil. To be inclined is to be angled towards something. If you ever put a, if you were to put a round marble on an inclined plane, so this is inclined, if I put a marble here, which way will the marble roll? It's gonna roll towards the bottom part of the inclined plane. And the same way we are inclined in the direction of evil. And to be inclined has to do with what? Your desire. Human nature makes choices based upon what we desire. We only ever do what we most desire. Now, you might be thinking that over this past week, I had to get up early for work or to work out, and that was completely against my desire. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to have to get up early to go to work. I didn't want to have to get up early to work out. Well, that's a good point, but yes, you did still do what you most desire. You may have not done, you may have gone against a desire to sleep, 
but you still did what you most desired, right? So you got up out of your desire to be in shape, and so you acted according to your greatest desire, and you got up and you went to the gym. Or you acted according to your greatest desire, which was to get the check, so you got up and you went to work early. So we, we can't escape that uh, desire-action uh, relationship, that um, motive-desire relationship. We only ever do what we most desire. <clears throat> okay, so a couple other points, and I'll probably end here because we are, I have two minutes. So I'm gonna finish on uh, this and then you guys can go back and read through paragraph five um, when, when you get a chance. So a couple more comments before um, I end. As we think about our neighbor who quietly lives as a law-abiding citizen, never defying the state, always paying his taxes, having never uh, gotten a speeding ticket, he seems to be this upstanding person, it's helpful to have categories and distinctions in mind when we think about doing good. We ask, how can there be these uh, deeds of apparent goodness when the Bible says that no one does good? So if you think about it like this, somebody may have an external conformity to the law <clears throat> while being void of any internal motivations of obedience to God. The late R.C. Sproul helps with this sometimes confusing idea and he says this from a biblical perspective to do a good deed in the fullest sense requires not only that the deed conform to conform outwardly to the standard of God's law but that it proceed from a heart that loves him and wants to honor him you remember the great commandment you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind Matthew twenty two thirty one. If, <clears throat> is there anyone who has loved God with all of their heart, and with all of their soul, and with all of their mind? Even over the past few minutes, obviously, no. Nobody loves God with all of their heart, not to mention the soul and the mind. He concludes, if we consider human performance from this perspective, we can see why the apostle would come to an apparently radical conclusion that there is no one who does good that there's no goodness in the full sense of the word found among mankind. So if by that context um, and um, in that way we rightly define good, then we have a better understanding of how to understand um, self-sacrifice among unbelievers or the unregenerate or things that are done that we would say, oh, that's a, that's a good deed, that's a good thing. Now. I have more on paragraph five, but I won't be able to get into it this morning for the sake of time. But uh, we're at time now, so let me pray and then we'll close out. 